0: Welcome to the markets. Hello again. Along with Max Armstrong, I'm Orion Samuelson for our weekly get together to check market activity from Wall Street to feedlots to grain fields. And we're coming to the end of the first full week of trading in the new year and the first full week of trading in the decade. Dateline Scottsdale, Arizona, Friday, January 10. And later on in the program, Max will be talking dairy with a gentleman from Rice Dairy in Chicago. But right now, let's look at what happened today on Wall Street and in world stock markets. Stock market here today fell from record high levels as investors took profit and data showed slower than expected December jobs growth in the United States. But the major indices posted gains for the week. But domestic jobs increased by 145,000 last month. That was below expectations for an increase of 164,000. And the pace of hiring remained more than enough to keep the longest economic expansion in history on track. Today's report also showed the jobless rate held near that 50-year low of 3.5%, and average hourly earnings rose one-tenth of 1%. Some of the uh, statements from traders today, one that said, You've had an extremely strong start to the year, led by a number of technology stalwarts and an underwhelming jobs report. But he said that has given investors reason to take some profit. But next week, the focus will turn to earnings. The Dow Industrial Average down 133 points after going past the 29,000 level for the first time in Wall Street history. But the Dow ended today at twenty-eight thousand eight twenty-three. The S&P 500 lost nine and a half points to end the week at thirty-two sixty-five, and the Nasdaq Composite dropped twenty-four points to end at ninety-one seventy-eight. But for the week, the S&P 500 up nine tenths of a percent. The Dow added seven tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq climbed 1.8 percent for its fifth consecutive week of gains. But the gains followed easing tensions between the U.S. and Iran, and firmer hopes of the U.S.-China trade deal still on the schedule for next week. The S&P 500, which gained 2.2 percent for the week however, was down two-tenths of a percent today. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow told Fox Business the China-U.S. trade deal is still on track to be signed January 15. Boeing Company fell 1.9% after the company released hundreds of internal messages that contained harshly critical comments on the development of the 737 MAX. With the fourth quarter earnings season set to begin in earnest next week, analysts expect profits for S&P 500 companies to have declined six-tenths of a percent in their second consecutive quarterly decline. And today, the S&P 500 posted 61 new 52-week highs and one new low. Volume on U.S. exchanges, 6,770,000,000 shares. That's a little bit above the 7 billion average for the full session over the last 20 trading days. But it's not just happening here in the United States as far as the uh, upward move in the equity markets. The uh, dollar fell and global equity markets retreated from fresh highs today as signs of renewed U.S.-Iranian tensions scuttled a rally that was triggered by the U.S. labor report showing a strong economy despite showing uh, the slow job growth in December And the United States said it was imposing additional sanctions on Iran as a result of its missile attack on U.S. troops in Iraq this week. But Iraq appears set to bear the brunt of any further violence between neighboring Iran and the United States. And, of course, that all came about with Soleimani, Iran's top general, in a drone drone strike on January 3rd. That started the entire growth of tension in the Middle East. And then we take a look at the price of oil. Because of that tension in the Middle East, oil was impacted as well. Oil dropping below $65 a barrel in the first weekly drop since November and looking at the prices uh, for oil the Brent crude ended at 64.98 that was down 39 cents for the day and the uh, US crude ended the day at $59.04 a barrel that was down 52 cents a barrel So that's what happened. Well, there seemed to be a lot more every day on a daily basis. And we saw the Dow go through 29,000 for the first time in the history of Wall Street. And we had a string of record-setting days again for the indices in the stock market. But as I mentioned, earnings report season starts next week. So let's take a look at what Will be on the docket. JP Morgan Chase and Company expected to report its fourth quarter results on Tuesday, and the bank's results will be closely watched by investors looking to gauge the health of the U.S. economy. Goldman Sachs Group slated to report its fourth quarter results on Wednesday before the bell. The lender expected to post a decline in quarterly profit. And uh, The uh, remarks from Chief Executive Officer David Solomon will be watched closely. And finally, Citigroup also scheduled to report earnings for the fourth quarter on Wednesday, and Citi's executives likely to provide their outlook for 2020. Bank of America slated to report fourth quarter results on Wednesday. The second biggest U.S. lender expected to post a decline in fourth quarter profit. And again, the regional governors of the Federal Reserve will be busy on the speaking circuit next week. In various parts of the country, they'll be appearing on economic programs and forums, and so... uh, We're going to have to wait to see what kind of decisions they'll be making in the new year as far as interest rates are concerned. Labor Department expected to report data on job openings and labor turnover on Friday. And on the same day, building permits data for December scheduled to be released. And investors are looking for a drop to a, a million four hundred sixty five thousand units. And separately, the housing starts number is likely to increase to an adjusted annual rate of a million three hundred seventy eight thousand units in December. And that would be uh, the number a little bit higher from the 1,365,000 units in the previous month. Industrial production likely to have fallen just a tenth of a percent in December. And the Labor Department expected to release the Consumer Price Index on Tuesday. They're expecting that to be unchanged at three-tenths of a percent in December. So uh, what about some of the corporate activities? Boeing Company is set to lose the world's biggest plane maker title to its rival Airbus after being at the helm since 2012 when the U.S. plane maker reports its 2019 deliveries on Tuesday. And the figure expected to plummet in the wake of the 737 MAX grounding following the two accidents. Delta Airlines expected to report a 5.6% increase in fourth quarter revenue when it reports on Tuesday, driven by continued strength in U.S. air travel demand. United Health Group is expected to report fourth quarter and full year 2019 earnings reports on Wednesday. the largest U.S. health insurer expected to comment on the prospects for its business after the repeal of an industry-wide fee. Then on Wednesday, post-trial oral arguments scheduled in a lawsuit filed by a group of U.S. states seeking to block the planned merger of Sprint and T-Mobile. That case coming before U.S. District Judge Victor Marrero in Manhattan. So it's going to be a busy week, but earnings reports will certainly get the focus of the reports that we'll be getting this week on Wall Street. A couple of other notes that we want to bring your way to with the week. U.S. trade regulators said today they will investigate wearable monitoring devices, including those made by Fitbit and Garmin. This comes after allegations of patent violations by a, royal, by a rival company, Philips, The U.S. International Trade Commission said the probe would also look at devices made by California-based Ingram Micro, as well as China-based MainTech Computer Company and InvenTech Appliances. Job growth did slow in December, but still not bad. Unemployment rate 3.5%, and uh, that measure of unemployment dropped to a record low last month. And apparently uh, it, that number is holding quite well as the economy continues to expand. Uh, some of the slowdown in overall job growth in December likely due to seasonal volatility associated with a later than normal Thanksgiving day. So a look back and a look ahead But we're going to take a look at the status, financial status of the dairy industry here in the United States when we continue on the markets.
1: Your best defense against breast cancer is a mammogram. I'm Dr. Sandy Goldberg, a breast cancer survivor and founder of a Silver Lining Foundation. An early detection saved my life. Are you uninsured? Are you underinsured? Are you a survivor and need follow-up testing? Feel like you have nowhere to turn? Times are tough, but getting a mammogram shouldn't be. Call us at
2: 312-345-1322. A Silver Lining Foundation is here to help. We're going to talk about the dairy situation this weekend. Joining us in the studio is Andy Fallman from Rice Dairy. Welcome. I appreciate you
1: having me. Thank you for your time.
2: We uh see people continuing to exit the industry. We hear about that from time to time. In mm-hmm. fact, there was uh, someone who was telling me the last dairy farm in Sangamon County, Illinois, that's around Springfield, is is going out of business now. Uh, it is, I think, for many people, a time to exit the industry because they looked at the, the situation. Maybe they were up in years. Maybe they were milking a smaller herd. Mm-hmm. What is the status right now as we've come out of... Uh, 2019 is the the price situation for the producers at least a little bit better than it was
1: uh, yeah, absolutely. When you think about, uh, you look at this time last year, really, right? Um, I want to say the January Class free futures were trading at about $13.75. Today, it's about 17 bucks. So you've, seen a certainly, you've certainly seen a turnaround in price action uh, that's been positive for the producer. Um, you know, in terms of break-evens, though, we've certainly seen those starting to grow as well. Things like inflation, cost of doing business, really. Labor has been a big piece of it. So you're seeing some of those intangibles, you know, things you really can't hedge, uh, starting to grow in terms of um, you know, cost.
2: Labor really has been a challenge for the people to milk cows, Mm -hmm. and and we have seen more movement toward automation of dairy operations because of that, have Mm -hmm. we not?
1: Absolutely. You're starting to see more folks uh, move towards robots. You know, I've only seen one, but it's a pretty interesting structure to be on. But, yeah, I mean, you're starting to see uh, innovation in that space, and I think you'll continue
2: to see it. Well, the millennial milker certainly uh, doesn't want to be tied to that farm quite mm-hmm. to the degree that mom and dad or the grandparents were. They want to get away every now and then. Absolutely. And that, that the robotic milker allows them to have a life, too, yeah, doesn't it, it? It's a pretty interesting setup. Let's look at at what's guiding the market right now. The the domestic milk consumption, the fluid milk consumption, continues to be in the spotlight and continues to slide. Does it not in a very competitive marketplace? You know, I actually think there's going to be some pretty positive change here for the fluid space. Um, in class one, you start
1: to see more folks uh, throw their hat in the ring and bring some products to the table that I think are really value add. You know, you think about things like Fairlife, uh, Organic Valley, Ultra, A2 all bringing products that are starting to grow in demand, things that are, you know, like lactose free, higher protein milks. You know, um, my son, uh, he he loves a glass of uh, fair life chocolate milk. You put it in front of him, he's going to eat his vegetables, too. So I think there's a lot of the pl- uh, positive change for class one.
2: I have a granddaughter who's the same way. And, you know, to me, that product doesn't tastes like the traditional milk product that I grew up drinking. It's, it's got a little bit different flavor to it.
1: But it's got a little bit different flavor to it, absolutely.
2: But obviously that generation coming on is important to, to be able to, to serve them. Yeah. So you think maybe there, there is some hope for that fluid uh, market?
1: Absolutely, for sure. And there's a different way they're actually going to be able to price it as well here. Uh, and I think it's going to make it a little bit easier for folks to not only forecast but budget as well. Recently, uh, Class 1 changed the way they're pricing. And so before, it was always the higher of the two prices between Class 3 and Class 4. Now it's an average of the two plus a static premium that they'll always get. And so before, you never actually knew what the price was going to be moving forward or really what the contract that was going to be priced off of. Was it Class 3? Was it Class 4? It was always the higher of the two. But now it's an average between the two, again, plus it's a $0.74 cent premium. So it makes it a lot easier for folks to be able to hedge it and budget accordingly out forward.
2: How is most of that fluid milk marketed? In other words, how does it move through the the chain? I mean, I think of, for example, the school systems traditionally have been a big outlet for fluid milk. Mm -hmm. I see so much fluid milk moving over the counter, for example, in drugstores, in a CVS or a a Walgreens drugstore. How how does most of it get to the consumer? The supermarket, of course, is a big outlet.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you, you really just hit on all three, right? And, you know, you think about it, too. I, you go down to the grocery store and it's always in the very back of the grocery store, right? You have to travel through the entire grocery store to be able to actually get to the milk. I think it's the product that more people are continuing to buy. And again, with all the different you know outlets that they have between all those different products that are coming online... Um, You know, I believe it's, again, higher demand at the grocery store level is starting to pick up as well as restaurants. You know, restaurant sales are up three and a half percent between full service and quick service. And they're starting you're starting to see more of those folks, you know, have like the small bottles to say, like
2: Fairlife, for example, sitting in the fridge. Those are handy. They're convenient. I love them. Mm -hmm. They started with the chug. Which goes all the way back to, I think, around 1996 or 97, Mm -hmm. and it was designed, I believe, by a man in Tennessee who designed that container for what would have been Dean's. Well, that now brings me to another topic. What's happening with these big companies, Dean's and, of course, Borden now? Why the bankruptcies in that uh part of the industry
1: you know it's an it's an unfortunate turn of events for these folks and i can't speak specifically to those you know to those two companies but i can say the landscape and you said it earlier for class one has been a tough go you know if you look at the last couple of decades consumption has been down Um, you also look at you have increased competition for products that are more in demand again lactose free higher protein you've seen all those different folks come to the table and bring more value-add products Um, i think in, in general though the class one landscape again Seen a lot of positive change between what they can actually hedge, as well as the different product consumptions that are coming to the table. So again, unfortunate turn of events, I can't speak to their situation, but I do think class one in general is on the rebound.
2: Let's talk about cheese for a moment. Cheese demand is important in this part of the world, isn't it, for that milk check? Definitely. And how's it going? Generally, it it equates to how the economy is doing overall, does it not? Absolutely.
1: Um, You know, last year, Pretty aggressive price action. We think about it this time last year. The barrel cheese market was trading on a low of $1.16 a pound. Uh, Fast forward to November, it got up to $2.40 a pound. So a significant change in price to the upside. Um, Cheese demand in general, again, restaurant sales, full service, quick service, all both up 3.5%, doing very well in 2019. Uh, I think so that in general, that cheese demand, and then you think about uh, our export space as well. Uh, the most recent export data showed uh, processed cheese, fresh cheese in demand, both domestically as well in the export space. And you're seeing some different export partners show up. South Korea, actually, uh, we exported more cheese to South Korea this go around in the last five years.
2: In terms of total dairy exports, nonfat is very important, is it not?
1: Nonfat is very important as well. And again, recent export data shows a strong build in that price. And um, I think you're actually starting to see more folks come to the table that we haven't seen in some time. And, um, you know, European stocks have been dwindling here. And that's actually been a pretty significant overhang in the market for a number of years. Um, That has since changed. And you're starting to see more folks come to the table, you know, know, places like the Middle East, for example, starting to show up and buy some nonfat uh, Mexico, obviously a big partner there as well. Um, and we're starting to look at getting some trade agreements in place.
2: Um, you know, that'll allow us to move more milk powders out East. In terms of our total milk production in the United States, am I correct that we're now exporting almost, not quite, but almost 20% of what we produce, 17, 18%, something like the, that? That's in the ballpark of that area, yeah. Isn't that wild? I mean, when you think about it, because not too many years ago, our exports were, were pretty minuscule pretty in terms of luster. dairy. Absolutely. And it shows you how important that really is. All of the images on television here of late coming from down under have drawn attention to mm-hmm. what's been happening with the livestock in Australia. Their next door neighbor, of course, New Zealand, is a big milk producer and... Mm-hmm. A dairy exporter. Is there any fallout from what's happening down there? We know generally the cattle industry in, in Australia is beef cattle.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it's such a tragedy that's going on there. And, you know, our hearts really go out to them. Um, in terms of ramifications, though, in the dairy space, Australia is the seventh largest dairy exporter in the world. Seventh largest. Seventh largest. And uh, as of 2019. And, you know, they move, obviously, oh, they're one of their biggest customers uh, in general, Asia. You know, I mm-hmm. think of China. Uh, they do a lot of cheddar, uh, milk powders, as well as uh, fresh milk. So, you know, these brush fires are also compounding an, uh, uh, just as much of a problem in the drought that they're having as well. And so, you know, we've, we've shown that the export data, for us at least, has grown. And so you're seeing that demand overseas really start to pick up. I think what we're about to find out, too, is that the, there's going to be a supply shock that hits the market and that you're starting to see some of these Oceania folks not be able to maybe potentially supply folks like China hmm.
2: We started out this discussion talking about the situation of the individual dairy farmer here in the mm-hmm. United States, and it occurs to me, I've been seeing all of these social media images, of course, of farmers continuing to struggle with the harvest of 2019, the images Coming in out of uh, the Canadian provinces, North Dakota, Minnesota, where farmers are still trying to get that crop out. That's another thing that was a challenge for many milk producers, was it not? In 2019, not only did they have still the challenges of the market and various cost of doing business, but Mm -hmm. they also struggled with cropping.
1: Yeah, being able to get the crops in the ground is key too, right? And uh, that was a struggle, especially in the Midwest. You know, every time I was up in Wisconsin, it seemed like it was just, you know, uh, every every field was, was more or less a puddle, right? Um, I, I think, you know, those are things that are going to continue to be a challenge here moving forward, but we're also starting to see some positive price action out in the forward curve. Um, I look at it and say, you know, my general outlook for dairy prices here, I think there's going to be a little bit of a hiccup here. Um, you know, we had a 240 barrel price. I think that really generated a lot of, you know, it, it triggered cheese supplies, right? It triggered folks to make cheese. Uh, I think we're going to see the effects of that here in the first quarter, but I also think, too, those growing exports are going to be able to scoop that cheese up, uh, and we can continue to have somewhat of a bull market here going into the latter part of 2020.
2: So the producer milk price should be in the in the positive area through this year, you
1: feel? I would say, too, even with the slide in the cheese market that we've seen here as of late, uh, the futures market out forward, I'd say even April through December, has actually reacted pretty positively
2: despite what we've seen lately. Great visiting with you, Andy. Appreciate you coming I in appreciate to talk you to having us. me. Thank you very much, Andy Fallman from Rice Dairy.
0: Today, the U.S. Department of Agriculture raised its estimate of the 2019 corn yield to 168 bushels per acre. That's up a full bushel from the previous 167 bushels per acre raised its 2019 soybean yield to 47.4 bushels per acre. Trade wasn't expecting that, but the market did not react very much in grain prices at the close today. But Don Roos, president of U.S. commodities, had this to say. He said, this report is not a game changer. This didn't give us a lot of new information. So we're looking at next week and what's going to happen with the U.S.-China Phase 1 trade deal. He said we were handcuffed going into the report with larger supplies around the world with improved weather in South America and hopes of some better demand from China. We come out of the report pretty much looking at the same thing, according to Don Roos. Incidentally, I found this interesting, and uh, I thought maybe you would too. It's amazing how many different crops are included in this year-end report for 2019. Now, corn, soybeans, and wheat, of course, come in with the big numbers. Corn for grain, acres planted, 89,700,000. And uh, corn for silage uh, came in, well, they don't really give us the uh, numbers on that because you have to uh, do some calculating on total yield. But some of the other crops included in today's report, mustard seed, peanuts, safflower, rapeseed, lentils, dry edible peas, hops, maple syrup, mushrooms, peppermint oil, and potatoes. And that's, well, probably about half of the numbers and the commodities that they cover in this annual report. But some unusual ones there for sure. Remember the days when you found pickup trucks on farms and ranches across the country? Well that's changing. As a matter of fact, we saw auto sales of some of the major companies dropping in their report this week because more people are buying pickups and SUVs and that is driving down the demand for two-door or four-door passenger cars. For example, soaring demand for SUVs drove record sales for premium car makers, including BMW and Mercedes last year, and that leaves the industry on a collision course with government efforts to tackle global warming. BMW said today deliveries by its main luxury brand rose 2% to a record 2,168,000 vehicles last year, thanks to a 21% jump in sales of its X-branded sport utility vehicles, which now make up 44% of the BMW brand's global sales. And at Mercedes-Benz, the world's best-selling premium car brand, every third luxury car sold last year was an SUV. We have certainly changed our desire for the automotive industry. So let's take a look at uh, the uh, markets that ended today in the uh, agricultural trade. Beginning with livestock, U.S. live cattle futures climbed to the loftiest levels of the week on expectations for higher cash cattle sales at feedlot markets in the plains and also as harsh weather again coming to parts of the region that increases stress on the animals. Some feedlot cattle in the central and northern plains have traded at prices steady to firmer than a week ago, while cattle in the southern plains were expected to trade later today at least a dollar per hundredweight higher than last week's sales of mostly $124 a head. The uh, end of the trading day saw the April lean hog contract down 40 cents a hundredweight, $74.12, although there's still hope that China will be increasing its imports of U.S. pork in the very near future. And uh, live cattle today, the February contract ended at uh, 77 cents a hundredweight higher at $127.42. And the January feeder cattle contract gained 67 cents to end the trading session at $147.60 a hundredweight. Then the grain market. Let's see what happened there today. As we said, not much reaction to uh, what came out in the January crop report today. And uh so we're now again focusing on the hope for signing of phase one of the u s trade agreement with China next week. The end of the trading session for the day in the week saw March wheat up one and three quarter cents five sixty four a bushel, March corn up three and a quarter at three eighty six and a half a bushel, and January soybeans up a penny, nine dollars thirty five cents a bushel. And that's the way the market traded and ended this week. Along with Max Armstrong, I'm Orion Samuelson saying thank you for joining us on The Markets.